What I'd like to do tonight is continue really the third part of, uh, of talking about right intention. We, we began the new year, as we generally do with the new years, talking about our intention for the new year and looking at what it is to take something as um, something like a new year, which we totally make up, right? Everybody knows there's not really anything called the new year. But we take that convention and how to use that convention skillfully, how to use it in a way that serves us. Um, and so the, one of the ways is to reflect on the old year and then contemplate the new year. What do we, what do we want? What do we want to happen? What, what, um, what do we want to accomplish is often one level of that intention. Another level of the intention is, oh, who do we want to be in the new year? given that we're not fixed. We're not fixed to who we were last year. And the question that we, we brought up a couple weeks ago came from Suzuki Roshi, who said it most elegantly. He said, what's your heart's inmost request? What's your heart's inmost request? And people contemplated that and did some inquiry together and dyads and then and then last week, um, I talked a little more uh, traditionally about how right intention is understood. And it's understood that there are three important parts to right intention, to one's intention, or three intentions that seem very vital to realizing the Buddhist teaching or the Buddhist path. And the three intentions are the intention for renunciation, the intention of, um, of non-ill will, and the intention for non-cruelty. And last week we just talked about renunciation. And uh, renunciation, as we talked about last week, is not something people are so excited about generally. It's not usually the first thing like, oh, let's go renounce. You know, that's, you know, people are much more like, let's go to the movies or let's go, you know, whatever. But um, I was hopefully framing renunciation in a way, as I understand it, in a very positive way, um, in the sense of as we begin to see clearly and we, our intention clarifies, our heart's inmost request becomes most clear, then we're, we're able to make choices about what supports the realization of our heart's desire, of our heart's love, and what doesn't. And if there are things that doesn't, they don't support, they don't nourish that realization, they don't water those seeds so that the heart's inmost request can be manifest, then we want to learn to let go of the things that don't allow for that. And renunciation in that sense, and very clearly in the Buddhist teaching, is about letting go. I also like this kind of word spin a little bit about re-announce, right? Renunciation means to re-announce or to re-declare or to re, in that sense, when we declare ourselves, we re-declare what our inmo heart's inmost request is. We, and so part of our practice is to keep declaring, to keep announcing, 
What, it, what is it that we love? What is it that we care about? And then how can we bring the rest of our life into alignment with that so it supports that love, so that love can flourish, that love can manifest, that love can be realized? And we, we didn't get any further than renunciation last week. We just talked about renunciation. So this week now I'd like to talk about the, the last two uh, traditional uh, uh, um, aspects of uh, intention, which is non-ill will and non-cruelty. And you'll notice all of them are in the negative, which is the Buddhist way often, especially in the early texts, that they posit things. I'm not even sure why exactly, except they, it, it leaves for things, when you say them in the positive, it can often define things. And when you say it in the negative, it leaves it open to define it for yourself in some way. But I'm not totally traditional, so I'm going to define it in the positive also. Um, let's see. Well, let me start here. The, the two qualities of non-cruelty and non-ill will are heart qualities. And, and this is an, I think this is really important about the whole uh, idea of intention and the relationship between renunciation, non-ill will, which is basically goodwill, right? Non-ill will, the opposite of that is goodwill. When there's not ill will, goodwill is allowed to arise. When there's not cruelty, then kindness is allowed to arise. Compassion is al allowed to arise. So in one sense, when we look at intention, intention is one of the areas that wisdom and compassion are pointed to quite, quite clearly and connectedly, like they're connected. Renunciation, goodwill, kindness are all connected. The wisdom of letting go, of renunciation, of relinquishing, of not holding on, of seeing clearly, as we talked about last week, that actually there's nothing we can hold on to actually anyways. And that part of the Buddhist understanding is that to come into harmony with what's true, with the truth that we can't hold on to anything, brings a certain kind of peace, a certain kind of clarity, and then a certain kind of wisdom that arises from seeing the, the impermanence of everything the ungraspability of anything, really. And so you, what we have here is in the Theravada tradition a very clear understanding of the connection between renunciation, letting go, wisdom, and the heart. Wisdom and compassion, which are sometimes talked about as the two wings of the Buddhist path and that they can't exist, one can't actually exist without the other. That you can't actually have wisdom without the heart, without kindness, without love. It's, it's not true wisdom otherwise. And you can't have kindness and wisdom and, and love in the Buddhist sense, in the Buddhist understanding, without wisdom, without clear seeing. Because we're not we're not describing here emotional love. We're talking about a, a more what would be called sublime understanding of love, a more essential understanding of love. 
really a more pervasive, all-pervading sense of love. Uh, and, and the same with the sense of compassion. It's not just emotional compassion. It's not simply feeling bad for somebody. It's what's called the quivering of the heart in the face of suffering. And then the response to that. And, and just the fact that we're willing, we have the capacity to see suffering, to look it directly in the face, which means to look at our own face, first of all, right? To see our own suffering. And to also look directly at the suffering of others. It takes wisdom. It takes the cultivation of mindfulness and the development of a certain level of insight, of a certain level of, of wisdom, in order to be present with suffering. And so I'm, I'm tying together both wisdom and compassion and the practice of mindfulness here. That the practice of mindfulness is key to the fruition or the realization of wisdom and compassion. Why is that? Why, why is mindfulness important? I don't know. No, I'm kidding. Sorry. <laughs> so, 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 so. <laughs> I'm just bad that way. <laughs> Sorry. Um, mindfulness is important because mindfulness teaches us how to be with suffering. Mindfulness is the skillful means that allows us to learn how to stay present with the fact that things don't go the way we want, that we have very little or really no control over life, that people we love will leave no matter how good it is, right, at some point, that people we don't love will stay. <laughs> It's true. It's true. <laughs> right? Everybody knows that, right? right? That whole worlds that we're involved with, like if you think about your life, you can think of whole worlds you've lived in as a, as a young child or as an older child or as an adolescent or a teenager or a young adult. Whole worlds that are gone now. And they might have been wonderful worlds. They might have been whatever they were, they're gone. Things go. Things are impermanent. And that the understanding of suffering, the word, in, in, especially for those of you who are new, it's an important word to know. If you're interested in Buddhism, is dukkha. And dukkha, dukkha is commonly translated as suffering. But it's much, much broader. It's suffering. It's unsatisfactoriness. It's impermanence. It's... Uh, the fact that um, it's, it's very broad. Like if you were sitting during the meditation and it was way too hot, that's a dukkha. You know, if you're, somebody's dying in your family, that's a dukkha. If you're, you know, trying to get a job and you can't get a job, that's dukkha. If you get a job and you don't like the person you're working with, that's dukkha. It's it's a characteristic of human life. It's not a mistake. This is important. It's not a mistake, Dukkha. It's a characteristic of life in this realm of existence that it's not 
even if you get all your ducks lined up, they're just ducks, right? It's like, <laughs> even that's not satisfying at a certain, you know, you get the right person, the right, you know, job and the right house and the right whatever it is, computer and whatever it is you want. It's still, there's an, there's an element of unsatisfactoriness that drives us. That's dukkha. And so dukkha is just, it's part of human life. It's not all of human life. doesn't mean there isn't joy, there isn't love, there isn't delight, there isn't pleasure, there isn't goodness. It's all there, but there's also dukkha as one of the characteristics. And mindfulness teaches us not only, first of all, how to recognize dukkha, but how to be with dukkha in a way that's liberating. And so in Buddhism you'll hear this, I probably said it last week too, there's the suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to less suffering. And, that, and we're interested in that. We're interested in suffering because it's the beginning of the end of suffering and the Four Noble Truths begins with the truth of suffering, the truth of their causes, reasons that they're suffering, the truth that there is the possibility of freedom from suffering and that there's a path, there are skillful means that lead to that freedom that are available to all of us. Now, um, part of what's important here when we start talking about these uh, uh, aspects of intention, goodwill, kindness, love, care, compassion, uh, um, empathy, um, the, what the Buddha is suggesting here is these are qualities of heart that are important not just to be a good person, they're important for awakening itself. That awakening does not happen without these qualities of heart. That the heart, sometimes one of the euphemisms the Buddha used to describe, uh, describe awakening is the sure heart's release. And one of the areas that, um, that we find ourselves not letting go, holding, not relinquishing, um, is around the heart. How many people here have had their heart broken? I mean, seriously, right? We're not, and that's, that's normal, right? I mean, if you look around, that's normal. We, it's part of human life. And it, so it's not, a, it's not a bad thing, it's not a wrong thing. What's, what's not helpful is we're not given the skills to learn how to let that heartbreak help us or liberate us or show us the way to freedom. To show us really the depth of what our heart is, possi is possible for our heart, the breadth of our heart or the width of our heart. Sharon Salzberg, who writes a lot about the heart in Buddhism, one of her books is called uh, A Heart as Wide as the World. And it's really the possibility for our heart to be as wide as the world, to be that, to that, be that vast, that boundless uh, of love and kindness and compassion. Um, I know for myself, when I first came to practice, one of the important um, uh, motivate, motivating factors was heartbreak. 
and I'd been married young and the marriage broke up and I was heartbroken, really heartbroken. And, uh, I, and I, um, um, I'll give you a little background. So at a very young age, I was, um, ex my, I had a brother and a sister-in-law who was a, a beatnik, especially my sister-in-law. I mean, she was like a serious beatnik. And <laughs> she was wild, really wild. And, you know, in like 19, I don't know what, 62, she had hair this long. And we were in Detroit, and she drove an MGB convertible. And if you were growing up in Detroit, nobody drove foreign cars at that time. You, you drove Chevys and Fords and, you know, Pontiacs and Buicks. And she was wild. She she was bisexual, and she was like out there. And you know, we didn't. I didn't know anybody like this. And and they were into existentialism and drugs and all this stuff. And and they would let me come hang out with them and hang out at their beatnik parties. And I thought this was totally cool and <laughs> kind of wild. And and. Um, and so I very, at a very young age, I identified, and I've watched, I really, in retrospect, I could see how my identity began to weave around that, especially as a pre-adolescent and then adolescent. And then, of course, the whole hippie thing, I was like down with that, a strong identity. And then, and then um, uh, uh, but a, a certain kind of outsider identity. And then especially involved with left-wing politics at a certain point, outsider, outsider, that kind of identity. And, um, and then when I'd gotten married, actually, my, my wife was not so much of an outsider, and it was a little more like I came inside a little bit. And then when the marriage broke up, it was like I watched myself. My heart was so hurt. I didn't know how to deal with it, and I just thought, oh, get tough. You know, get streetwise. That's the thing to do. I knew about being streetwise, and I'd, I'd lived in New York and on the Lower East Side and done radical street theater, and, and I knew, and, and that's what I thought I needed to do to survive, and actually I, I did need to do it at the time to survive. But it wasn't until uh, a little later, uh, um, what happened was I went, I went uh, to do a little pilgrimage I went to Israel, I was born Jewish, and I was like checking out what does that mean, so I went to Israel, and I was a musician. And what I did was, I went to every holy place that I could get away with playing my flute at, because I was improviser, I liked to improvise, and, and I liked to improvise at weird places, like tombs, and <laughs> like, you know, holy places, and sacred places, and... And, uh, and it, was, it was great. I learned a lot, and I learned a lot about Judaism, and I learned a lot about Islam and Christianity at the same time. And I mean, everything's just on top of each other. It's totally insane. But, um, but um, what was interesting was at some point, uh, I did a High Holy Days ceremony, traditional Jewish ceremony for atone, and you atone for your sins at a certain, on a certain day. And so I'm reading these atonements, and the second atonement like jumps out of the book, like like you know that movie The Mask. You know how the face used to jump out. <laughs> this was like really, it was like one of these experiences. The words jumped off the page, and the atonement was for hardening of the heart. 
And that's actually a beautiful thing to atone for, hardening of the heart. And I realized my heart had hardened. And I realized I wasn't happy with that. That was not a good thing, to just let my heart harden in that way. And, but I didn't think about it again. It was like, okay, that happened. Then a few days later, I was at the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, and I, don't, I didn't know what I was doing there. They wouldn't let me play my flute there. That was <laughs> clear. But, um, but um, you know, so I'm putting my hands on the wall, and people are doing their thing, praying. And, and I, I'm standing there, and I put my hands on the wall. All of a sudden, I got this little download. You know, before there were downloads even. Download. <laughs> I got a little download. And the download said, learn how to meditate. That's what you need for hardening of the heart. And I got it. And I came back to America and I found the meditation teacher and I started meditating. And it, and it worked. And it worked. I'm happy to say it worked. It was the right medicine. It was the right medicine. But it didn't work in a magical way. It worked in a very skillful way and in a very clear way. There was suffering from, especially from the breakup of the marriage, I hadn't metabolized. I hadn't felt. I, had, it ha I hadn't let it live. I'd suppressed it. I'd repressed it. I'd denied it. And on my first long retreat, it came up with such force, I, I thought I was going to regurgitate. And it, it scared me. I mean, it was powerful. And I went to the teachers and talked to them, and they said, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to stop it. You don't have to make it happen. You don't have to get rid of it. You don't have to encourage it. Just stay present, stay present, stay present. And slowly I learned how to stay present with the grief. It was normal. This is normal. When, when our hearts break, when we lose someone we love, we grieve. That's a normal human response. We're not taught how to allow that normal human response to live. All of this is in the service of saying, we have to attend to our hearts if we want to attend to the Dharma. We have to let our hearts live if we want the Dharma to reveal itself here. And so these intentions are part of letting the Dharma live. Here's, here's a quote. This is from, uh, from the Buddhist canon. It's an interesting story. And the story is that the Buddha's talking to some lay followers, and he's talking to them, um, and he's telling them stories about his previous lives when all these bad things had happened. But he'd done, he'd done good. He'd been generally he was an animal in the different previous lives, and like one time I can't remember the details. Like one time, you know, one of the animals sacrifices itself so that their children could live, or things like that, or the, or the tigers are dying of, of, uh, of starvation, so the rabbit gives himself to the tigers and things like that. And the Buddha's telling these stories, and they're, sometimes they're considered children's tale in Buddhism or morality tales, but they're really tales about the Buddha's life and his cultivation of generosity, of kindness, of care, of empathy, of all these beautiful qualities of heart. 
And it said as the teacher, as the Buddha related these tales, detailing his own deed in a previous state of existence, his hearers shed floods of tears, shed floods of tears, and by reason of the softness of their hearts, became fully attentive. This is one of the possibility as we uh, relinquish, as we begin to let go, as we begin to renounce the holding around our hearts and let our hearts do what hearts do, which is live. Hearts are tender, hearts are soft, hearts are alive, hearts are juicy. And he says, he says, his hearers shed floods of tears and by reason of the softness of their hearts became fully attentive. Thus did the Blessed One, the Buddha, knowing full well what would be of advantage to them, what would be skillful for them, he proclaimed the Four Noble Truths and taught them the Dharma. And at the conclusion of the lessons, the Brahmin, together with his sons and daughter-in-law, they were all established in the fruit of stream entry, which means first stage of enlightenment. That the Buddha, one of the things he's saying here is part of what's needed for the Dharma to go in is for our hearts to be open, for our hearts to be soft, for our hearts to be unheld or unguarded or uncovered in some way, shape, or form. And so this is part of the intention here for goodwill and for kindness. Because because those are natural qualities that the heart will reveal as we learn to turn towards our suffering, as we learn not to turn away from our suffering, as we turn, learn how to be with our suffering, then, of course, there's a beautiful phrase in the teachings on mindfulness where the Buddha says to be mindful both internally and externally. And so not only do we turn towards our own suffering, but we turn towards others. Not only are we mindful of ourselves, of our own experience, but others' experience. And so two insights or two contemplations that we want to look at of when we are mindful of our experience. One is the contemplation that we want to be happy, that this is a normal human desire. And maybe one's inmost desire and if that's your inmost desire, then the contemplation becomes what leads to your long-term happiness? We may know what leads to short-term happiness, but what leads to long-term happiness? This is how the contemplation or the intention to, to look at one's heart's inmost request becomes very important. Because then we can start to let go of the things that don't lead to our long-term happiness and start to live, start to encourage, nourish the things that do lead to our long-term happiness and benefit. And so when we see this, um, when we also look carefully, we see that we want to be happy, and then we look at other people, and you could look around now, you could try this. Everybody look around and see that the people you're looking at want to be happy. And let everybody see that you want to be happy. Just see what it's like to stay very present as you see, oh, these people want to be happy. Everyone here wants to be happy. 
whatever, however you might define that happiness, that's something that human beings want. And it's understood that when our mindfulness starts to open, not just inward but outward, and we see that people want to be happy, what will come naturally when our heart is unclouded, unoccluded, is goodwill. Is the wish, yeah, well, I want you to be happy. That would be great. I'd love it if everybody here was happy. We could have a great time together. Right? And then let's do one more of these. Now look around, and this is part of the second, the third, the third aspect of intention, which is non-cruelty uh, or compassion or kindness. The other contemplation is to see that everybody here, everybody here, everybody, everybody here suffers. Everybody here experiences suffering. And if you look from the eye of wisdom, from the eye of mindfulness, you can actually see it. And it's not something you have to hide. You can't hide it. But now I want you to look around and see that everybody here has suffered. Just notice how it impacts you. You want to stay present. And see what it's like to look through that lens for a moment. At the suffering of people. The suffering of illness or the suffering of age or the suffering of some kind of discrimination based on gender or sexual orientation or race or religion or culture or money or, you know, or, or just the suffering of, of uh, aging or that people have lost people. And then what, if we're present, if our heart is awake, alive, to function in its natural capacity, part of what will come is compassion. It's the heart's natural response to suffering. And it's so shocking sometimes to see how cruel we can be to one another, how cruel we can be. And uh, I, I, when I was a, a therapist, I had a, a supervisor who was trying to help me train to do couples counseling. And he said, the most important thing to do is get them to see the blood. He said, he said what couples will do is they'll shoot, but they'll shoot like this. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> and, they'll, and they'll really dig at one another or hurt one another or be mean to one another, but they won't see the impact. He said, if you can get them to turn and actually see the impact, then their compassion can start to rise. And it's true for all of us. If we see the impact, we see the suffering, our heart can do what it does, what it's possible of. This is from Longfellow, secret American Buddhist. <laughs> he said, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. 
you know, and it's, it's often true in communication. We, we can have all this stuff with somebody, but if we actually get direct with them and we say, you know, you hurt me, or, you know, or they get to say you hurt me, you know, it just, it really, we see that they've suffered, the person's suffering. And we can be more empathic. We can respond with more of the capacity of our heart, the capacities of our heart and mind, which are limitless. This is a very important point. They're limitless. We have no idea the power of our heart and mind. Our hearts and mind get limited by our holding, by our grasping, by our um, limiting ourselves to some idea of the past of who we are, of how things are, instead of living freshly in here, in now. Because when we get into the, and this is again where mindfulness allows realization to come to fruit. That we have to be in the moment. Compassion won't arise as an idea from the past. It's a nice idea. It's better than nothing at all. But the living compassion arises in the present moment, in the moment of our presence. The true love or metta, loving kindness, arises in the moment. It's, a, it's, a, it's not just an idea. It's not just a good idea. It's a state of being. And that state of being, that beingness, is part of our birthright. It's part of what realization is, is the beingness of the human being. I want to read you. Here we go. Where to go? So my first insight in insight meditation, this was almost before I had that insight about my marriage and the grief, but it was on the, it was on the same retreat. It was the first retreat I sat, first 10-day retreat. Um, and like I said, I'd been someone who was around the beatniks and the hippies and kind of radical left-wing politics. And even as a musician, which I was, I was into music that was not pop. I wasn't, I hated pop music. I was into non-performance, non-popular music. You know, one of my friends, we would be playing and if people walked out, he would, he was proud, you know. Was like, <laughs> like, he, he would hold up a finger as one and two more people, three, you know. It was kind of, you know, Avant-garde, jazz, post-jazz, you know, free music it was called. I was always interested in freedom. But, um, but partly my identity was woven around being different or outside or really based on the sense of self and other, self and other. And, you know, whether it was beatniks and squares, right? I don't know if any, any of you remember. There were squares. People were square, right? And then the, the beatniks were hip. Or the, then there were the hippies and the straights 
and then there was like the left and the right and then the free music and all that commercial crap and you know it, it was always a division a division a division and really the first insight I had after sitting down for a few days was oh there's no us and them there's, that whole thing is just made up us and them and it doesn't mean there's not the uniqueness of each person and different cultures and different countries and that's all there but there's not actually us and them. It's all us. It's all us. And that had a huge impact on me, a huge impact on my heart. And I found this story that is similar. I'll read you. It's from uh, The Sun magazine. This guy writes, he said, I spent Christmas 1970 at a fire base in Vietnam. On my way to retrieve the company mail before the holiday, I encountered three local farmers in straw hats. The men worked on the base, and when I saw them, I thought of the three wise men of the nativity story. And in naive earnestness, I asked if they celebrated Christmas. Uh, they smiled, and one said, no, we're Buddhists. That simple statement opened my mind to the fact that I was an other in Vietnam, that I was the other there. Six months later, my otherness had become raw. I felt I was on the wrong side. I was being pulled apart, fiercely loyal to my fellow soldiers, but horrified by the atrocities of war. When I returned home, I felt worthless. Protesting the war brought no relief, only jail time. I took an assortment of drugs, suffered a failed marriage, and spiraled downward. Several years of therapy allowed me to manage my emotions well enough that I could pursue a college degree, marry, have children, but there was always an underlying self-loathing. In 1993, I picked up the Sunday paper and read about a company that organized bicycle tours of Vietnam. I knew right away that this was what I needed and I signed up for a 1,200-mile bike ride. On Highway 1 near Bien I, I'm not sure if I'm prevent, present, uh, saying it properly. Vienne, I would imagine. Uh, oh, excuse me. On Highway 1 near Vienne, I stopped to admire a Vietnamese farmer's tidy plot and small home. He spoke a smattering of English. I spoke even less Vietnamese. But we pantomimed and discovered years ago we'd been soldiers on different sides of the war. With that, he embraced me. After he let go, I collapsed by the side of the road, racked by sobs, unable to go on riding. Dien, a Vietnamese man who was also on the bike ride, laid his, shoulder on my, laid his hand on my shoulder and said, John, you are a good man. It became clear to me that there were no sides, no other. There never had been. And so you hear the holding of the heart and then the release of the heart and then the wisdom of this clear seeing that there is no other, that the heart includes all of us, that the heart itself is boundless. And the world needs this heart. It needs this heartfulness. It needs it more than ever. It needs your awakening in this way to see the truth, the truth of wisdom and compassion, of letting go, and then the love that is here when we learn how to let go. 
And it doesn't mean letting go is easy. It's not. I don't at all mean to say that. But I don't know of any nobler task in our life than to find the capacity to continue to mature as human beings so we know directly for ourselves that there is no other and that our heart begins to manifest that understanding, that wisdom in the world, in our actions, in our responses to people both personally, family, friends, work, community, culture, country, nation, beyond. That we have this possibility for bringing awakening into the world. And it's a beautiful intention to wake up. And so these are some of the qualities that come together, that are needed for awakening. And here this may sum up really a lot of what I've said. It's from Bhikkhu Bodhi. He said, when we begin to see how life is pervaded by dukkha and how dukkha derives from attachment or clinging, craving, that the mind begins to incline or intend, intention begins to intend towards renunciation or letting go of dukkha. To, to abandoning craving or clinging or holding on in the objects which bind us. Then, when we apply the truths, the Four Noble Truths, in an analogous way to other living beings, the contemplation nurtures the growth of goodwill and harmlessness. We see, like ourselves, all living beings want to be happy, and again, that like ourselves, they are subject to suffering. The consideration that all beings seek happiness causes thoughts of goodwill to arise, the loving wish that they be well, happy, peaceful, and the consideration that beings are exposed to suffering causes thoughts of harmlessness to arise, the compassionate wish that they be free from suffering. And so I'd like to take a few minutes doing a little loving-kindness practice at the end, a little heart practice, and very specifically for the people of Haiti who are suffering, and suffering quite deeply right now. And we will offer our goodwill and our care and our kindness. And if you haven't done uh, any of the heart practices in Buddhism, it's very simple. One thing, it's, it's good to be as comfortable as you can be and to begin maybe by shutting your eyes and as if you could breathe in and out from the heart. Let the breath begin to kind of massage the heart area or soften or saturate or permeate. One of my Tibetan teachers would talk about uh, moisturizing the heart with the breath. Because all of our hearts have been hardened or hurt in some way. So we want to first of all acknowledge the goodness of our hearts. And let the breath, let our presence begin to saturate the heart. Our awareness, our breathing. And then I'll, I'll say a few phrases, traditional phrases of metta, of loving kindness and compassion. 
and you just repeat them silently to yourself as if you could as if you're speaking them right from your heart or from your whole body your whole being whatever works for you and you can experiment but you don't you don't say them out loud just very softly simply to yourself and then watch the impact or just see what happens for the people who are suffering in Haiti may you be at peace we wish you peace now may you be safe protected free from harm free from danger and just keep breathing with your heart and the words and you can say the phrases again and again even while i'm talking letting the heart learn how to speak in this way may you be well and healthy of body and heart and mind May your suffering be alleviated soon. May help come in every way, in every form. May our goodwill, our good thoughts be of help. May they be of support or nourishment to your spirit in this difficult time. may you find the patience the steadfastness the whatever qualities are needed to sustain you through this difficulty food water sustenance medical care come quickly and find each person who's of need may you be free from suffering may there be as little extra suffering as possible given the nature of the earthquake and catastrophe may all the people of Haiti be kind to one another good to one another caring for one another may the whole world see clearly that there is no other that we are the people of Haiti may all the people of the world offer their goodwill their kindness their care in every form material spiritual in every form 
wish you find happiness in whatever small form and as soon as soon as possible. And then letting the heart's boundless nature begin to speak or express itself <coughs> to beings here in Haiti all across this world the beings who are suffering in difficulty we offer any merit from our time of practicing here together may it go out to beings in every dimension every world every realm <coughs> may all beings be happy and peaceful May all beings be free from suffering, from the suffering that comes out of ignorance, comes out of holding, comes out of the hardened heart, the suffering of whatever ways we divide, whatever ways we end up believing there's another. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings awaken. May we awaken together. May we discover together wisdom and compassion, clarity and kindness, freedom and love. May all beings be free. <coughs> <coughs>